0: Well, welcome to another episode of Sermon Extras. I'm Todd Bolander, and again on a special extra, extra, I guess this is. This is an super extra. extra. <laughs> ex, this is doubly extra uh, because in our last episode or last podcast episode, we went really long, and uh, although we were intending to include you, kind of flipping the role and you asking me about my recent sermon in Hebrews um, we didn't quite get to that so here we are back at it giving Jerry a chance to flip the roles and, and have a go at me and I have to admit that even though I do it to you, and I don't tell you what I'm going to ask or what I'm going to say, I'm not sure I really like being in this. <laughs> side of I
1: wondered how it would how it would feel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. So, um, I was preaching in Hebrews chapter ten, verses one through eighteen, as part of a series that we've been doing at the church, on again, off again. We like um, to
1: call it our occasional series. Occasional series. That's <laughs> right.
0: Uh, at working working through the book, different different people bringing messages, and I made the mistake of volunteering.
1: Yes, you did. And
0: you took me up on that. Absolutely. And this past weekend, I uh, preached that message. So, yeah, go ahead, Jerry.
1: So, so one, uh, thank you for doing that. I know that summer's a precious time for you, and, and obviously uh, this takes a lot of time to prepare a message um, I mean, it does for me and I do it all the time. And so how much more, uh, does it for someone who's not doing it every week? And, and so, uh, but clearly you wouldn't have known that had you walked in the church. We had a number of guests on Sunday and I left thinking to myself, well, no worries about that. They, they were fed quite f- fine and got a good picture of who we are as a church. So thank you. And my own soul, more importantly, was fed and nurtured and, and, and I just, I, I have to say, somebody said to me they thought it was the best message they had heard or exposition they had heard of uh, Hebrews 10, and I'd, I'd say I'd agree with that.
0: You and that guy need to get out more often.
1: That's right. That's probably <laughs> true, uh, but that's unrelated to this. But So so there are a couple of things I wanted to to, to push on, and, and you might have some other things where you, you want to share. Maybe this will help you launch into some of those. But the first in, in, in verse 4, four is in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse three, rather, but in this, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that whole issue of there's a reminder of sin, and you explained that well on Sunday. But I almost felt like you may have cut some things, left some things on the cutting room floor there, uh, that that were helpful for you as you explored this text, the 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 contrast between. Um, that 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 system reminded people of their sins, the new forgive sins, and that contrast um would you be able to expand on that some
0: definitely, well, as I wrapped up feverishly the night before and and I was looking at what I knew had been thinking about, what I believe the author of Hebrews was trying to say. There were definitely some things I had to cut and to try to keep it to around 45 minutes. And one of them about Reminder was that in this text, the author of Hebrews does a couple of things um, with his wording. Uh, he's a, he was clearly a very skilled orator and understood how to use words in ways that multiply their their impact, multiply their meaning at the same time. So he talks about the fact that in, in verse 2, uh, sorry, uh, what passage was it you were just reading? I, I read 3 and 4. 3, that's right. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So he's talking about... Could be, I think, I believe, he's talking about both the purpose of the sacrifices and the result. Right. So in either case, in some instances, it's obvious from the Old Testament that the purpose of certain rituals, festivals, including sacrifices, is to remind people of their their human need, how, how they are not... Um, morally perfect, entirely righteous, that there is injustice in their hearts. And and they sin. In other words, they right. disobey. And so I talked a little bit, because he says every year, it seems that he's talking about an annual ritual, namely mm-hmm. the Day of Atonement or Yom right. Kippur. And so that's why I went to that passage to read and and demonstrate that part of the command to observe Yom Kippur the day of atonement in Leviticus in fact in both passages in Leviticus it says in Hebrew um, to afflict your nephesh to to um, to trouble to disturb your Nephesh the Hebrew word that some Bibles are going to translate soul mm-hmm. other Bibles are going to translate self it means your whole being right? Life is another possible? uh, Life is another way that it gets translated. So it means afflict your whole being. And so the way that works out, um, what that phrase tends to mean, afflict your soul, afflict your nefesh in Hebrew, means the combination of mourning and fasting. So you're both afflicting your mind, heart, inner being over your sin, and you're not eating. You're afflicting your body. You're afflicting your whole person. You're putting it in distress over what you've done, what type of person you are.
1: Might I pause right there and just point out, referring back to our previous podcast, the connection between that then and the subject of, between fasting then and the subject of the forgiveness of sins is found even right here.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. And so it's obvious there's an intent to her mind, but also he's saying that, and he the author sometimes merges together, he conflates, he merges together regular sacrifices like ongoing rituals, daily stuff, because mm-hmm. he'll go on to say that a priest stands daily to offer the sacrifices. So there's times where the author says sacrifices, and what he means is the one big one at the end, but he also means the daily cycle that res- that culminates in this in one, one yearly. Yeah. And so there's purpose, of reminding and then there's also result of reminding that um that in many instances the purpose is fulfilled that people Correct. wind up um walking away from this event with a sin consciousness with what their mind uh what their inner being tells them that part of themselves that talks to you that part mm-hmm. that knows you and tells you
1: That does our self-talk? Yes,
0: uh, and tells you what's right and wrong and accuses you and justifies you, and, and so your conscience is set up to become, therefore, by this, and the result is you wind up thinking about your sins a lot. And so he's making the point that that's inferior, that's lesser than what Jesus has to offer, which is both an objective, that is, God truly is viewing you as forgiven and subjectively you feeling that forgiveness so the once and for all sacrifice of jesus takes away that reminder of consciousness and here's here's the the big piece i cut out is because this word in greek here for reminder the only other place it's used in the new testament is when jesus institutes the communion the sacrifice the eucharist the lord's Mm -hmm. table and he says do this as a reminder wow oh, wow and so this this very word scholars argue about whether or not the author of Hebrews seemed to not be aware of the Lord's supper or something which i don't think is the case but
1: uh, it's hard to imagine he would not have been aware of the Lord's supper whether right. or not he made the connection when he or, used the word right right, yeah. right
0: so but you know in thinking on it the 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 point that he's making holds true that jesus commands his followers to remember the forgiveness he's offering because of his sacrifice and so the institution that he sets up is the regular reminder of all that he did in his life giving his self-giving sacrifice so that you have forgiveness so that you're acceptable for the god and what that results in in you in liberation from that sense of condemnation that that feeling of That's guilt excellent.
1: That's excellent. Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad I pressed on that because that's that's huge. So let me follow that up. Uh, and and I this question I admit comes from a very uh, I don't l- let's say it this way I don't have what would normally be referred to as a high church or a very strongly liturgical background. I mean, of course, I was raised Catholic. That would be high church. But uh, since I've been about fifteen in some years parishes, old, yeah, in some parishes. That's right. Uh, since I've been about 15 years old, I've been in in low church and sometimes extremely low church <laughs> environments. <laughs> uh, I'm not so proud of all of them. Okay? I don't even
0: want to explore what that
1: means. Right, right, right. Um, so, so, but but when I am when I find myself in a a some uh, north of the middle of the road, more liturgical, um, I find uh, that what is often and I know it's well intended. Uh, this sort of beginning the liturgy with a confession of sin, uh, at least in some of my experience, and it's limited, I admit, I tend to feel as if we're being constantly made to remember what lousy sinners we are, as opposed to the forgiveness of Christ. Now, to be fair, they frequently, and I would say even almost always, include what Christ has done for us, but it seems to come after such a long litany of how horrible we are that it's almost it almost pales in comparison even if the intent was to make it stand out that much more glorious uh have, have, you, have you ever experienced that does that seem to be something that you've ever thought through how does that might relate to this
0: i have experienced that um i've thought through it some so some of this will be armchair here kind of off the cuff i i It is obvious, I think, it is obvious that the author of Hebrews wants his readers, this group of people who's considering returning to the Second Temple Jewish form of worshiping God as they understood it, including the entire sacrificial system. They're considering going back to that, and he wants them to realize that that's really leaving God and what God is doing in the world. And so the way he goes about doing it is to show them where Jesus has taken things as a fulfillment of everything God has promised. And in doing so, he wants them to know that one of the superior things that Jesus offers is confidence to approach, draw near, to God in all of his holiness, that what Christ offers every person who trusts in him is the ability to be directly in God's presence, directly um, freed of shame. Amen. Freed of guilt of condemnation. Amen. In God's presence. It's an amazing—he talks about Jesus made the way through the curtain for us to enter. Later on in in chapter ten, that that that's the access we have. The access that was only one person got to experience once a year. After a whole bunch of sacrificing and sprinkling and preparation, and still did it fearfully, mm-hmm. and people waited outside to see whether or not he died because he right. approached the presence of God, to know if they were accepted. All of that gone, right? all of it gone, walk in with full confidence. If you trust in Jesus, if you cling to him as your priest, as your sacrifice, you don't have to act like that. You don't even have to think like that because you are fully accepted because you're in Christ. When I think about those liturgical practices, I think um, of, of conjuring up all your sins and attempting to come up with them um i'm not I'm not inclined in that direction because I think it's it may be doing a thing that the author of Hebrews is telling them Jesus has. Offered us not to do. In other words, following Jesus means you don't have to do that.
1: Yeah, we, we've sort of gospelized the language, but in effect, we are doing a similar kind of thing. It seems in right,
0: that... afflicting ourselves. Yes, <laughs> that's well put. Yeah, and um,
1: and, and and I, I note one of the, the the two things that come to my mind when I ex- am in the context where I'm experiencing that. It's one, Hebrews 10, so the very text you're in. So that's why I raise it. That's that's where my mind goes, this co- consciousness of sin, this constant reminder. The other is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us worship, if you will, prayer. And he's very explicit. Our Father um, in heaven, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. Uh, Suddenly I realized we didn't have to confess our sins before we could say our Father. We didn't have to confess our sins before we could pray our three key requests. We didn't even have to say, confess our sin before we got to give us this day our daily bread. It fell pretty far down the list. Right. And of course it was still... Our sins, which means I'm not just praying for my sins, but for my brother's sins that I might be struggling to forgive as well.
0: And I think one of the one of the things that this implies, or at least that Jesus is trying to get us to do, and it was always true, but I think again, one of the things the author of Hebrews is trying to push in, um, trying to get his readers to to understand about the superiority of what Jesus is offering over the old covenant is that if you sin, your reflex should be to draw near to God, not to back away.
1: Right, that's good.
0: And and so I, I think in those moments, um, our natural human—and I don't mean like the way we were divinely designed, but our human now after exile from the garden— our instinct is to pull away from God. So like Adam and Eve, to hide when we've sinned, and to feel that shame. And Jesus, what the author of Hebrews, I think, is trying to say in this about sin and about consciousness, about remembering sin, is don't do that. Confess, yes. Like, if you know you've sinned, we have a faithful high priest. Who understands the temptations? Who is compassionate on you? Because he lived just like you did and felt all the pulls that you felt, and and didn't sin, didn't give in. So he gets you. He gets you entirely. And uh, so don't do that. Instead, lean into him, and he and he's already made the way for you to be uh, accepted by God. And so you can you can say, Lord, I know I did this thing I ought not to have done thank you for accepting me, thank you for Jesus covering me. I want deliverance. I want freedom from that. It, it, it's, my, it's my heart to please you, and I don't have to run and hide for like 15 minutes or right. 15 days or 15 years until the memory of it is sufficiently diminished in my own mind right. before I can feel good enough to approach God. So there are all sorts of people in the world who— won't step into a church, won't have a spiritual conversation with a Christian because that's exactly where they live. Right, and I think uh, the author of Hebrews is saying to these these um, people who have begun following Jesus, these Jewish believers in their Messiah who have turned and are at risk of turning back, and he's saying, "Why would you ever want to go back to living like that? Right, right. that is not the way to live.
1: Right, yeah, excellent." So my other question that, that came in, and, and, and this is um, when you, you did sort of at the end of your message, a throwaway comment about the next section in Hebrews that you're not preaching. <laughs> of course, I immediately looked down at the next section and and I was aware of what was there, but the phrase that immediately jumped out and caught my attention, having just heard your message, uh, was in, in uh, chapter 10. Um, and verse twenty six. Why if,
0: did I know you were going to say verse twenty six?
1: Yes, go well, ahead. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and then and then this phrase, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now I've always read that as if we sin, then there doesn't remain a sacrifice for sins. But I'm not sure that it has to be taken that way. In fact. In light of what you, what comes before and what you just got through preaching through this past Sunday, it seems that uh, if we go on sinning deliberately after the knowledge of the truth, and remember, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins remaining. In other words, you, you can't go back and institute those sacrifices. We've been forgiven once for all. So that seems to somehow play into it. And, and I don't know if that had crossed into what you were thinking when you made that... Um, Sort of offhanded remark about the uh, upcoming section, but um, do you care to comment on that?
0: Well, I can comment, but again, it'll be tentative, and I will disavow any part of what I say that turns out to be wrong or just poorly worded. Uh, I'll, I'll. I do that with every sermon, by the way. <laughs> so I, <you> know. <laughs> I will, I will demand a do-over if if that turns out to be the case uh, that it's just awful so verse 26 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth so i think the first half of that is important for setting up the point he's trying to make in other words once we've come to understand what god has done in this new point in human history and human affairs transitioning from one age into the age of the messiah and everything that that goes along with that, which is, according to the point he's made, where there is forgiveness of these, i.e. lawlessness, transgression, sin, there is no more sacrifice. Okay, so if we go on sinning after we've gained the knowledge of the truth, I think one there are a couple of ways I'm inclined to take this. One is to say sinning deliberately here is consciously choosing to go back to that old system. Right, right. So sinning here is just like... Um, the way he's—the author has made it sinning previously, which involves um, earlier in the in the letter, he says that the people sinned when they didn't— the people of Israel sinned when they didn't enter into Canaan. Um, and their sin was not that they did— not that they worshipped idols or that sure. they um, did anything that was particularly contrary to a, com- a written command of Torah— what they didn't do was believe.
1: Right, and, and that They seems didn't to...
0: trust God when he said, go in and do it. I'm sending you there.
1: Right, and this idea tends to fit with the last verse in the chapter, but we are not of those who shrink back right. and are destroyed.
0: Exactly. So I think the sin there that he's talking about is the sin of knowing full well that uh, Jesus is the Messiah, that forgiveness comes only through him, and deciding to reject that deciding not to believe in other words the whole problem that he's heading that he's dealing with in this letter is the problem of not continuing in faith to jesus not not being loyal to that initial confession of jesus so i think that's what he's that's one of the main things i think he's talking about here um, and so, especially when you say, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that seems to frame up the whole point he's trying to make, is if you keep right. doing all the things that mean moving away from Jesus and your loyal trust in him, mm-hmm. then there's nothing else left. Sin uh, Offerings never got it done as far as forgiveness of sin or, or permanent right standing with God. It just didn't work. It wasn't what the system could accomplish. And if you go back for that, there's no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus was it. Yeah. So if you leave him, uh, there's nothing else. All you have is is a, a waiting for how this judgment, which they believed in as Jews and then as Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century, uh, something that sometimes astounds me how very little I think of or shows up very little in the way we preach the Bible or teach the Bible, is according to the gospel, Paul says this, there is coming a day where the intentions and thoughts and actions of men will be judged. And so that's all you have next. That's right. it. That's if, it. If you, yeah. if you turn away deliberately, consciously, willfully, after having learned the gospel and claimed to be a Jesus follower and learning it and walking in it, and then say, eh, I'm I'm good, you have nothing else.
1: Right. Right, that's good, because it, it, it seems like then in context it could be that what he's saying, if you turn back away from Jesus, well, he's already abolished all those sacrifices. It doesn't matter. And of course, we know from chapter 8, that which is old is disappearing and will soon vanish. We know that the temple was about to be destroyed and that they haven't had that sacrificial system. But in, in the writer's mind, it's already done away with in Christ. None of that is of any meaning and really never did accomplish the task
0: Right, it didn't accomplish the central task of um, creating right standing right. within a person's heart. A person, a person's soul, a per, well, I'm using that word more in the contemporary casual sense. When we talk about our inner being, we tend to call it our soul, even though the way that the Hebrew word tends to get used means your body and your mind, your whole being. But... Right. Um, Right. But it couldn't couldn't it couldn't fix what was wrong in our inner man. And so Jesus through the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ being sent into us, does fix that. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' victory over sin gives us permanent right standing with God. And um, and so there's no moral failure on my part that loses that right standing because there was no moral perfection that got me into that right standing. Right. Uh so I think what he means here, you know, just sort of close my thought is is rejecting Jesus. Right. Once once you know the gospel and once you have lived in it to turn away from it, there's nothing left. And that's why it says something, that's why down in verse 29, he's like, How much worse punishment do you think it will, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the covenant, by which he was sanctified?
1: And um, has so, outraged the spirit of grace. Right.
0: So here's a per like, if you thought it was bad what happened to people over the Old Covenant, which you're toying with going back to, what do you think is going to happen to the person, and he goes on to say being consumed by fire that, I mean, that's what right. you have to look forward to the wrath of God. Um, when, when you profane, that is know full. Well, what he's offering, who he was claim to have uh, obeyed him and bent the knee and then to go later and basically thumb your nose up at him. What do you think is going to happen to you? Right.
1: And, uh, and evidently, at least from what we, we suspect the background to Hebrews is uh, evidently, so that you can have an easier life in some respect, maybe less persecution. I'm,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm assuming that what you just said was all sarcasm.
1: Well, yeah, well, yeah, sarcasm in the sense that 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 that's absurd to then trade that. It's it's, right, uh, I it's a pot of stew. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah that would be ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. it's
1: it's a it's a stupid trade. Yes. <laughs> it's very very bad. Trade. Very bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. very bad. <laughs> uh, say it is well
0: it is well with my soul i had a couple other thoughts um things that i i cut out that i thought were implications so one in particular was doctrinal when i was writing up the what i wanted to say when i was writing up the sermon i had this point where i wanted to make about if jesus has once and for all sacrificed, and there was never any effectiveness. Not that there was never any point to it, or that it did nothing. He talks Mm -hmm. about things it does. Uh, It offers cleansing. Um, So there were a couple things I wanted to get into that, again, if I had another hour, I probably Mm -hmm. could have. One of them was eschatological. So in a lot of circles... Can you explain what eschatological means? (laughs) Yeah, I can, I think. Um, So eschatology is the study of what's last or the end so some people call it end times um that sort of thing the the coming age um so it's a fuzzy term that encompasses a lot because you will hear people talk about things going on in the church as fulfillments of eschatological promises so the spirit coming well that was an eschatological promise that there was a promise that in the last days
1: this would occur this would
0: occur Uh, Things like that. Often eschatology is treated as the study of future from our vantage point. Right, right. What happens after the current age that we're alive in. But of course,
1: according to Peter on the day of Pentecost, the last days began then, so we must live in the last days.
0: Well, that is certainly the position I hold. And so one of the points that I scratched from what I wanted to put in my sermon, because I didn't want people walking out of the church with their minds thinking about that instead of thinking about their need for Jesus as a high priest and as a sacrifice, was if if we take the author of Hebrews seriously, that Jesus once for all is done, and the sacrifices were ineffective, and don't really do the job of pleasing God as uh, in the way that obeying his will does, then it really, in my mind, causes problems for systems of eschatology, study of the last days, of end times, that say at some point in the future, Jesus is going to return, and then set up... Um, a kingdom here on earth and he's going to live in the geographical city of Jerusalem and there's gonna be a temple in that geographical city where people of Jewish descent will begin offering sacrifices because Jesus wants them to, so that they can fulfill the Torah and and um inherit the promises or and all sorts of other things. But mainly the idea that there's some millennial—this is usually described as part of the millennial reign of Jesus—is that the sacrifices will get reinstituted. And they'll point to Old Testament passages that are about the last days, and, right. and then people will keep the new moon and the festivals, and then they'll sacrifice, and I'll accept their sacrifices and things like that.
1: It seems they have forgotten that Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt was his body well, being raised from the dead.
0: He certainly— uh, makes that uh, he certainly makes that claim, and um, but for my purposes, I thought I couldn't imagine the author of Hebrews agreeing with that doctrinal position not, yeah. that at some point in the distant future he could look off and say, "Yes, Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice is 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 the only thing going, until one day when God right. will want animals killed again." it doesn't seem to line up it at all makes with no any sense. point he's yeah. making. So right. that was one thing that I cut that I thought um, sort of struck me.
1: Well, and, and, and while you're transitioning to the other, I should point out, you know, eschatol- eschatological is a term that needed defining, and I thought of one from earlier that I, I, I should have defined. We talked about high church versus low church, and Uh, It struck me that if you don't know what I mean by high church and low church, then you're low church. That's your experience, because people in high church probably know what that is. Uh, So that would be (laughs) the easiest way to differentiate what your experience has been. Right.
0: The, uh, The other thing was to talk about what sacrifices are, even at all, and why they ever manifest, and what is the biblical sort of what's the thread through the biblical line about sacrifices that finally lands where the author of hebrews is so i certainly didn't have time but just very briefly like my perspective again this is um it's informed but not expert is that it starts with adam and eve that most of the through lines in scripture any theme major practice it it has it has some It's a reflection of what's happening with the first humans and God, and that's that's the paradigm, that's the model, the base point from which everything the Bible is talking about comes out of. And um, and so the first humans were given the the opportunity to share in God's rule in the garden, and they failed. They failed to rely on Him, to trust Him. and which would result in obedience. Um, and so what happened, we find in chapter 3 of Genesis, when they disobey and God comes and he um, confronts them about it. Immediately following that, because they are hiding for the shame of their nakedness, the text says he covers them with animal skins. So we have established very early on in the narrative of human existence that from the immediate time that people failed mm-hmm. and, and relationship was broken, what God had told them was, in the day that you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Right. Well, then he showed up and he cuts them some slack. Right. He doesn't immediately kill them. Right. He grants them some form of mercy. But the requirement of disobedience for his creatures was death. Mm-hmm. And um, while the text isn't explicit, I think what's implied is some animals died to provide those skins. Yeah,
1: to, to delay this, if you will.
0: Right. Now, the death of those animals covered over, which is tip what a lot of scholars think the word kippur, atonement means. It's cover over. That's the base, original sort of where the word atonement comes out of is covering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of covering over a stain or covering because it was sprinkled on, the blood would be sprinkled on, you're covering something in order to, to appease God. And so he provides them with covering, mm-hmm. following their scent, covering that came from the lives of animals. So a life had to be given. Blood here isn't so much about the substance, mm-hmm. you know, the se- the red blood cells and the hemoglobin right. and the plasma right. and all that. Right? right? It's not about that substance. It's about the life that um, is given, um, that blood is. Right. And so some life had to go, because sin is death. Every sin is death. Um, sin results in death. And so what I think is happening is that the paradigm, the model is that humans from the very beginning sin, God shows mercy, and there's, there's this temporary stopgap of a different life can be substituted. But it's also making the point because Adam and Eve weren't then back in right standing with God.
1: No, they didn't get to stay in the garden.
0: They didn't get to stay in the garden. The very next lines after he gives them the animal skin is, because they've done this, now we have to kick them out. Right. So it it didn't restore them. It didn't restore them. It didn't put them back into permanent right relationship. It just covered over and allowed them to more time. It gave them, it was a display of mercy, but it also was a reminder of we're no longer in the garden. We're yeah. we're naked, and um, and there's shame involved in in how we've acted.
1: So now I'm going to turn the tables on you to what you did with me in the last uh, episode, which was, uh, uh, you know, give me some of the things that people have said that that were different than what I've just said. Well, you, there's a common understanding of what took place in the fall in Genesis three, um, th- that. Uh, and with the whole Genesis 2.17, the day you eat, you will die. And then what happens in Genesis 3? Um, well, on the day they eat, they will die. So, well, God must be telling the truth. Therefore, they had to have died spiritually. He wasn't talking about actual death. That seems to be contrary to what you've just said. Do you care to comment on that and tell me you know, why the distinction and, and, and what how you mean that?
0: If I say, no, I don't care to (laughs) come. in do you get out of it? No. No, no, Um, yeah, yeah. uh, I've heard that a lot, too, and I don't think it's wrong. I think in the sense that they spiritually died. I just think it misses the point of the narrative originally, which is to say that here is the ideal state, the intention of God creating humans on earth to share in his rule. Um, And they had to trust him that results in obedience, because he wanted a relationship with them. So, yes, they spiritually died in the sense that they no longer had perfect moral standing before God. That's absolutely correct. But it also misses the point that um, that he didn't—he showed mercy. So right. to to, yeah, to, yeah, to turn it into— Well, he didn't really mean your life, as in your physical, biological life, would be taken from you uh, when you do this. Well, the the fact is, yes, he did, and that the rest of the text, uh, soon after that, we start getting lists of people dying, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so, yes, part of it is the fact that biological existence now had a terminus now had an end for every human which wasn't the ideal that wasn't what he was going for um and and so that was forfeited that at that point but there was mercy extended so i think it trivializes uh, unintentionally while trying to uphold the importance of spiritual uh, of the reality of human spiritual existence and trying to elevate the idea that uh we have a spiritual component that only god can deal with i think when they treat the genesis text that way they're they're doing two things wrong one they're diminishing god's mercy uh in that experience that uh the first humans had and two they're diminishing the fact that god made us physical embodied beings and it was good it was very good right, right. and that Um, The goal at the end of the day, um, and by the end of the day, I mean end of all of this, the consummation of the age, the end of everything that God is doing in Jesus, is not for us to get transported off somewhere um, to exist in some ethereal realm, but in fact, the point is new creation. It's new heavens and new earth, and, and that... New Earth means biological existence. It doesn't mean disembodied existence. Resurrection bodies means mm. bodies. It doesn't right. mean um, wisps of air floating around. And and so I think that it diminishes those two things, both God's mercy and and the fact that God designed us to be embodied.
1: Yeah, and so maybe a subcategory of your second one, or maybe it's a third, but I think they're tied together, is... By by spiritualizing the death as its totality, although, yes, it did happen. They did die spiritually as we would define that. We also trivial or minimize salvation because then, in a lot of ways, the Gospels don't make sense if, if we do that because all Jesus came to save us was to give us spiritual life. But in the Gospels, he seems to do so much more than that. Right. And he seems to care about the whole human being. Right, yeah, exactly. And and so we don't want to minimize salvation either, and, and, and the one might lead toward the other if that's what we limit it to.
0: That's right. That's
1: good. Thank you. Thank you. Compassionate and gracious is the Lord. This is our God. This is our God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. This is our God. This is our God.